I want to start off this morning in our second sermon in the book of 1 John by introducing our sermon with another piece of Scripture. As Luther rightly said, Scripture interprets Scripture. And so, once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there was a man named Jesus, who was also God. And Jesus took his disciples where no self-respecting rabbi would ever take good little Jewish boys. This Jesus took his disciples way up in the northern part of Israel to a place called Caesarea Philippi, which was incredibly debauched. Some of the most ripe wickedness you or I could imagine was happening in Caesarea Philippi. And it was there that Jesus asked his disciples as he gathered them around him, who do people say that I am? And in the gospel of Matthew chapter 16, we're told what they say. They said, well, the usual suspects, Jesus, some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're Jeremiah, the prophet. Some people think you're John the Baptist yet again. And Jesus said, that's really interesting. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the redhead, said, Lord, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew 16, 16, it's what we call the good confession. And Jesus says to him, well done, Pete, good job. That's exactly right. But that didn't come to you through flesh and blood, but from my Father and the Spirit. Good job. You're exactly right. But then in about two verses, things pivot rapidly. Because Jesus says to Peter and the rest of the disciples, it is true, I am indeed the Messiah. And the Messiah must go to Jerusalem, where he will be handed over, where he will be betrayed, where he must suffer and he must die. Now look what happens Peter, in verses 22 to 23, remember the good confessions in verse 16, but just a few verses later in verses 22, Peter took Jesus aside. Don't you just would love to have seen that little scene where Peter goes, hey, hey, look, Jesus, I know that you're the God man and the incarnate second member of the Godhead Trinity, but let me help you here. You need to stop talking about this whole death thing. Messiahs don't die. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Be careful when you tell Jesus what he can and cannot do. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. That's a pretty quick change from this was revealed to you by my Father, who is the Spirit, to get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not, listen to this expression, setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It is a stinging rebuke, and it sort of sets the stage for what I want to talk about this morning. What's going on here? Why does Jesus tell Peter that? And why does Matthew record that in his gospel? What's happening? Well, ultimately, Jesus and Matthew are wanting the people of the church for the last 2,000 years to understand something really, really massively important. And that is that we are all held captive to certain ideas, all of us. So just take a moment and make sure that you are fitting yourself into that little sphere. All of us 
are held captive to certain ideas. Peter had an idea for what the Messiah should be and do. And so Jesus had to take him all the way up into the far country to destroy, to deconstruct, to dismantle that errant idea. Here's a definition that I want to give us all for what an idea is. It's not just a thought or a light bulb going off. No, 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 no. An idea is a pattern of interpretation of life. So I want you to hear this. All of us, in one sense or another, are held captive by an idea. An idea is a pattern of interpretation of life that is historically developed and socially shared. You might say there's sort of a pandemic of ideas that captivate us. It is historically developed. It is socially shared. It is intended to explain life and map out a life that works. Isn't that interesting? Ideas are so strong and so subtle, we often don't even know that they exist. They're patterns of how we interpret life. They're patterns of how we try to make life work, and we share them among one another. Just to make sure all of your toes are adequately exposed, some ideas that we live with are, oh, I don't know, nationalistic, that our nation is God's chosen people, It's not a biblical idea, but it is a historically developed, socially shared idea that impacts, influences, informs, and instructs how we think, how we go about our day, how we engage on social media, how we treat our neighbors and coworkers. That's an idea, and it holds us all captive. Maybe it's some social cause or another. All of us are held captive to ideas, and here's what I want you to know. Ideas are like vampires. When you shine light on them, they explode. They're very, very strong in the shadows. But when you shine light on ideas, just like vampires, they explode. And so that sets us up for our big idea this morning from our passage that Megan's already read for us. It goes very simply like this. Walk in the light. Walk in the light. And when we do, all of those errant notions and ideas will be exposed And they will be obliterated, and we will, for the first time, perhaps in a long time, experience freedom, and dare I say, even joy. And we will be pleasant to be around. And then we will have sincere, authentic fellowship with God and with one another. This morning, we're going to come to a familiar passage. You've already heard it read. But let me be clear, it might sting a bit because it gets into every single one of us. See, the Apostle John, the Revelator, he loved the Lord and he loved the Lord's people so much. His greatest desire was that the believers of the church would have abiding assurance. And so to these people, he writes this text. I'm going to read this text one more time very quickly just to set our stage here. Beginning in verse 5, John says, This is the message we have heard from him, that's Jesus, and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us all or from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, I want to remind you, why does John start this way? It's very quick. It's very hasty. Remember, 
John is an old guy. He has no time for pleasantries. He has no time for just welcome and introduction. He dives right in. He's probably in his late 90s. And so John dives right in. He says, this is the message that I got from Jesus from the very beginning. Now, these words that John gives us are not recorded in any of the gospel accounts. Clearly, Jesus taught them and told them a whole lot more that is not recorded in Scripture. But John goes right in after his four-verse prologue saying, Jesus is the incarnate God. He is God made flesh. We touched him. We heard him. We saw him. He's real. He's God. And he was alive. And he was dead. And he's alive again. After that four-verse introduction, John dives right in. Now, we have to understand that John is speaking to a particular people in a place at a time for a purpose. Otherwise, we run the risk of misinterpreting and misapplying what John writes in these verses from verses 5 to 10. We have to understand that the people of that day, mostly in what is today Western Turkey, the Roman province of Asia, Ephesus, Laodicea, all those cities, they were dealing with a cultural and societal idea called Gnosticism. It's a big vocabulary word. Let me be very clear. Gnosticism was not formally systematized and codified until the second century. And that's when they began to write it down. But the idea of Gnosticism was holding most people in the Roman Empire captive. You see, Rome had won the war militarily, but Greece won the war culturally. And this idea of Gnosticism had infiltrated even the churches that Paul had planted just a few decades earlier. Gnosticism works like this. It says that the world is made up of both spiritual and physical aspects. And that's good. We agree with that. There's material, there's spiritual, physical, immaterial. We agree with that. But what Gnosticism says is that all things spiritual are good, all things material are bad. And that even impacts how we think today. You'll hear people say, well, I know what you see is this or that, but I identify as X or Y or Z. That's Gnosticism. There's nothing new under the sun. I know that my physical form is this, but the real me, the true me on the inside, my spiritual self is actually thus and such. That's nothing more than Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism taught was, in time immemorial in the past, way, 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 way back in the eternal past, there was God, and he was spirit, and he was good, period. And then from that God emanated this sort of subordinate God called the Demiurge, and he was a little tiny bit less good than the originating God. And then that one emanated another little sort of subordinate God called a Demiurge, and he was just ever so slightly less good than the first one, who was a little bit better than the second one. And on and on and on and on went. They kept emanating and emitting Demiurges, these gods who would get a little bit less good, sometimes even bordering on ornery or mischievous, until finally this God emanates, this Demiurge, and he's so ornery, so mischievous, that he actually created the physical universe. That's how ornery he was. But he wasn't good, because material things, as we all know, are bad. And so what these Gnostic people were saying is, this is how the universe works. This is how life works. You have to figure out how to get connected to, all the way back to, the first originating God who was actually good. But the God that created the universe, he's bad. Don't waste your time with that. 
And oh, by the way, there's no way that Jesus could have actually been human because material things are evil. He wasn't God. And John says, I'll beg your pardon. I'm going to choke you out. He's God. And this is the message we have from him from the very beginning. You think life works like this, Gnostics? You think that the universe works like this? Let me explain this to you. And he obliterates their idea. Remember, this historically developed, socially shared idea that all of us are encased by and imprisoned by. They had theirs, we have ours. We'll get to those in just a moment. So then John writes, says, let me explain what's going on. This is the message we've had from the very beginning. That God is light. And in him, there is no darkness. He's not what you think. You have to repent. You have to rethink your thinking. He's not some demiurge who has some orneriness and some mischief in him. No, no, no. He's all light. There's no darkness whatsoever. Why does John use the term light? Light, historically in scripture, means two things. It means his holiness, his perfect, radiating purity. In Isaiah 6, God is holy, holy, holy. And he was brilliant to look upon. And Isaiah said, I can't stand here. I'm being undone at the, at the molecular level. But light also has the notion in the Bible of revelation, of exposure. In other words, John is saying he is holy, he's perfectly good and pure. There's no darkness in this God at all. And he has revealed himself. He has made himself fully known in the person of his son, his sendable self, his Jesus. There are no secrets. See, the Gnostics taught that you had to have secret special knowledge that only they could give you so that you could find your way back to the originating God and find your divine spark. John says, no, there's no secrets. And anytime you hear someone say, let me tell you the secret, that's what we call a cult. There are no secrets. He has revealed himself completely and totally in the person of his son, Jesus. And so John continues. There is no darkness at all. Now, John's going to deal with three errors or three lies that the Gnostic idea was perpetrating that was starting to infiltrate these churches. Three issues. We're going to see them here very quickly. Verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The argument went like this. Listen. This body is physical, it's material, it doesn't matter, it's gonna die. The real me's going to live on. So it doesn't matter what I do in this body. God's got to forgive me, that's his job. So I'm going to live it up. Perhaps you've heard that sort of expression used. If you've ever done anything in youth ministry, you've heard that sort of excuse. It doesn't matter what I do, God's got to forgive me. Well, the apostle Paul in Romans chapter three, verse eight, takes a very hard line on that. He says, if that's your thinking, then your condemnation is just. John says the same thing. If you say that you have no sin and yet you walk in darkness, you have no fellowship, you are a liar. So there in verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him, oh, I'm a Christian and I believe, but I can do whatever I want and God has to forgive me, then you've missed the point entirely. In fact, you've missed the person entirely. Now, most of us were alive at least at some point during the late 20th century when hasty evangelism was sort of the normative operation of the church, when it was just get them saved, get them saved, are they saved, are they saved? And so we have a tendency to read a passage like this and go, well, wait a second, are they Christians or not? Not the point. 
Did they say the prayer? Did they not say the prayer? Not the point. If we claim that we have fellowship, but we walk in darkness, we've missed the person. We must repent and rethink our thinking. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, as Jesus is in the light, he's our example. There was no darkness in him either. He walked in the light perfectly. Never, ever once held captive by a single historically developed, socially shared idea. No, he walked in the light. And we are challenged here, John says, to walk in the light as he is in the light. And if we do that, we have fellowship with one another. Now, a lot of people, and I understand why it's a little bit confusing, have misinterpreted that to think it's fellowship with one another. It's not what John's talking about yet. Oh, he'll get there. In the coming weeks, we'll study that at length. But here he's saying, we actually have fellowship with one another. We have fellowship with God. Now, perhaps you've been in church long enough where that's not a shocking, scandalous thing to hear, but it should be. The story of humanity is one long, sorry, sordid tale of jacked upness. From Genesis chapter 3, we just keep losing. It's bred into us. We lose, we fail, we fall. We fail, we fall. And so we can't have fellowship with God. How can a person have right standing before God? God has to do it. Here's the gospel. Verse 7, we have fellowship with one another, with God, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, it's not the actual fluid with the hemoglobin and the corpuscle. No, 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 no. It's a metaphor, clearly, John is using. The shed blood of Jesus unto his death. His death accomplished something for us. And so we have fellowship. The innocent died for the guilty so that the guilty could have fellowship with God. And so we walk in that light. Error number two, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Oh, that's not really me, the Gnostics would say. That's not me. That's my body. That's my flesh. That's not really the true me. I have no sin. John says, I'll beg your pardon. I'll choke you out. You're lying to yourself. Sin is anything that proceeds apart from faith in thought, word, or deed. Anything, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 14. Anything. And so if you claim to not have sin or that you're increasingly sinless, I've actually met people like this. Say, I became a Christian, went through a rough patch, and then I'm fully sanctified, and I haven't sinned in years. (laughs) At which point I go, well, there's one! There are people walking around like this, even in East Texas, who claim that they do not have sin. John says, you're lying pitifully, pathetically to yourself. Listen to what he says here in verse 8. And the truth is not in us. Why does he say that? Because all through Scripture, the Bible says that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. But you and me are darkness. And in our own strength and merit, there is no light at all. There is not one who does good. No, not even one. Our very best efforts are filthy rags compared to him. So if you claim to be without sin, you're simply lying to yourself. Well, then a very familiar verse, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and 
to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess. The word is hamalageo. It's to speak the same words. I speak the same words about myself that God does. What are those words? Your filthy rags and your very, very best efforts are inappropriate. It's sin in your own strength and merit. I speak the same words. Now, not to achieve or accomplish or earn forgiveness. No, it's mine already. But I speak the same words. And I don't tell God, hey, God, I, I want you to know about this before Gabriel blabs his fat mouth again. No, 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 no. I'm the kind of guy that does this. I'm the kind of guy that thinks those thoughts. I'm the kind of guy that says those words. That's the kind of person that I am. But I'm also the kind of guy that you have hidden in Christ. And so I speak the same words that God speaks about me, and he cleanses me from all sin. And what's more, from all unrighteousness, even the jacked upness that I don't know of. And that's a lot. Because I kind of like to think that I'm not as bad as Mike and Matt, but I am probably much, much worse. And so I find myself in this idea, I don't have to be the best, I just have to be better than you. That's an idea that culturally infiltrates the church. John says, no, you confess, not to earn and accomplish and achieve. You speak the same words and you are cleansed and you are restored to right relation. When we steadfastly refuse to confess and no, I'm not gonna let that sin go. No, I like it, it felt good. We believe the lie. We're captive to this idea that that sin of anger or lust or greed or whatever it might be, is going to provide for me a life that works. And what's ironic is that my life then begins to deconstruct and dismantle, and it all falls apart because I'm held captive to a faulty notion and idea. But when we confess, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin and from all unrighteousness, and we have fellowship. Verse 10, lie number three. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. We have sinned. We sin. We will sin. It's our sorry, fallen condition. Luther said at the same time, we are saints and sinners. What is the church? Luther said, it is that place that is full of sinners and hypocrites and yet saints. The already and the not yet. And so if we say, no, 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 I'm so much better. I sin less. No, you don't. You're just tired. You just ran out of steam. You just decided you'd have something else to fill that void. Sin is anything that proceeds apart from faith, and all of us are held captive by ideas in which we instinctively, because of our society and culture, we put our faith in those things rather than the light. But John wants us to walk in the light. And if we think we're getting better in our own strength and practice, then his word is not in us. His word says we are sorry, falling sinners. Cheer up. It's worse than you think. But you're way more loved than you can ever imagine. That's the scandal of his grace. And it is amazing grace. So what do we take away from this text? These This wonderful, familiar passage. Just three very quick summary implications from this passage. Number one goes like this. When we walk in the light, light illumines our ideas. Now, candidly, 
I was going to say light exposes our ideas, but that doesn't really alliterate, and it's not, you know, as nice and gentle and soft, but it's what I mean. When we walk in the light, it brings to bear all of the faulty, errant notions and ideas that hold us captive. The more we enjoy and experience fellowship with him, the more he graciously and patiently lays bare all the ideas and all the crutches that we lean on. on. His word is light, which sounds pleasant, until it becomes a laser scalpel that cuts away all the crutches that we lean on. That's what Hebrews 4.12 is talking about. His word is a sharp two-edged sword. And it's not the hromphaya, the big man cleaver. No, no, no. It's a dagger. And the idea is it's pointed right at your neck. And it cuts away all the things that we errantly lean on. That's what his word does. And when his word taps us on the shoulder and says, hey, you've been putting your faith in... I don't know, your finances. You've been putting your faith in, I don't know, your nation and the political structure. And you've got all of your muscle tension is all freaking out about who's going to be the next Supreme Court justice. God's word says, breathe. That's a faulty idea that's holding you captive. Walk in the light. God is the supreme judge of the cosmos. It leads us to repentance. That's what his kindness does. We don't deserve it, but the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and so we repent. We rethink our thinking, and he unbinds us from all of these ideas that hold us captive. Number two, fellowship is the fruit of the gospel. We actually have relationship with God. How can a person who has fallen and fouled up have fellowship with a God in whom there is no darkness and only holiness? Our story is a long, sad one of failure, but God did it. This is the gospel. His sendable self, Jesus, the innocent, dies for the guilty. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And now we have right standing with the originating God of the cosmos. Not some emanation of an emanation of an emanation of an emanation that requires secret language to get back to. No, no. We can know him deeply, personally. Enjoy our time with him. He's not an idea. He's not a construct or some collection of notions or, or platitudes. No, 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 no. He is a father. The best father. I don't know what kind of dad you have or had. He's the best father who loves you and me so much that he sent his perfect only begotten son to die for the undeserving. And we have fellowship with this God. Now we can know him and enjoy and experience him forever on a daily basis. This is fellowship, to commune with this God. Yes, ultimately, that's going to produce a fellowship with one another. Again, we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. But principally, we must have fellowship with this God as a person. Third point goes like this. The life of Jesus is the only life that works. Everybody that you've ever met in the world, ever, is simply looking for a life that works. By the way, advertisers know this. 
and they're hawking and marketing everything from the slap chop and the sham wow to a brand new Cadillac, telling you that this is going to get for you the life that works. But the life of Jesus is the only life that works. Am I saying it's going to be easy and prosperous and plentiful and bountiful? No, you might die. In fact, you're probably going to should he tarry. And last I checked, he tarries. But there will be joy and there will be fellowship with him and ultimately with one another. The life of Jesus is the only life that works. And you and I, like the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, can kick against the goads saying, no, I will have it my way. To which God will say, we'll enjoy Burger King for all eternity. You're gonna smell like onions. No, the life of Jesus is the only life that works. And so we get to walk in the light and say, God, you're right what you say about me. I am fallen and fragile and all fouled up, but you love me. Isn't it interesting that the scripture says he is faithful and just, not merciful and kind and compassionate, though he is. He's faithful and just because he looks at you and sees the slain Christ. And he's just. And he applies that to you and to me. He's faithful and just. His is the only life that works. And so we are to walk in the light. Now, let me just conclude with this as, a, as an exhortation and an encouragement, perhaps a challenge. If nothing else, the year 2020, even before March, the year 2020 has surfaced, has raised a whole lot of ideas that are holding people captive, whether it's nationalism, where we think that this nation is still the indispensable nation in the world. It isn't. Praise God for our country where we get to worship and freedom and say, yes, but please do not be held captive by some nationalism. Walk in the light. Be a patriot, fine. But the Lord Jesus has not set this nation up as the kingdom of God. Can I be so bold? Or perhaps there's another angle of approach where you've been held captive by some idea of some cause or social activism and you think that we can just all band together and solve all the sin of humankind. (laughs) That's an idea that will crush you. It is an idol that will always fail you. Walk in the light. Should we be involved and engaged in one another's lives and bringing about change? Yes, absolutely. But because of whose we are, because of who he is, walk in the light and allow all of those bonds to cut us loose. Now, maybe you're here this morning. You're on the first floor. You're on the third floor. You're here. You're watching from home remotely. You have no idea what I'm talking about because you've still bought all of the lies, all of the ideas, historically developed and socially shared, that someone has told you this is how a life works. But I pray that this morning, the text that we've just studied will set you free, that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, as Peter said, the son of the living God, and that you will continue in understanding what that means for the Messiah, and that he has not come to build you your kingdom but to establish his in the hearts of people. I invite you to believe. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to have one closing song. And as we're praying, I'll invite you to perhaps have the courage to ask God to reveal to you what ideas are holding you down.
What are the ideas that you've bought into? I promise, I promise the Spirit of God wants to reveal that to you, whatever it is. And he is good. And you can confess it and he will release you from it. Or perhaps this morning, you're not yet a believer. I challenge you to have the courage to ask God if what I've just spoken is true, that he really did send his sendable self, his son Jesus, the innocent to die in place of the guilty. Ask him if it's true, and he will confirm it in your life. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done, and for this challenging text. Father, I pray as John got right to the point that your spirit will get right to the point in working with every single one of us to reveal to us in honesty, humility, and submission, and yieldedness, what are the ideas that hold us down that prevent us from having joy and fellowship with you by your Spirit through the finished work of your Son, Jesus? Would you reveal that to us? And Father, for anyone here this morning who does not yet know you, who claims to be without sin or that their sin does not matter, would you, through this passage, through your Spirit among your people, Lead them into a saving knowledge of your son. Would you do for them what you've done for the rest of us? Would you usher them out of death into life? We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.